Hey, .NET Rocks listeners. So you never went to NDC. I get that. It's Norway. It's Oslo. But did you know that the videos for all the sessions are online? Yeah, go to vimeo.com slash NDC Oslo. You'll see some amazing sessions, and they're all right there. And if you're really curious, you can check out the lineup for NDC 2014, which is happening June 2nd through 6th. NDCOslo.com is the website, but again, if you want to check out the videos, vimeo.com, that's V-I-M-E-O dot com slash NDC Oslo. Richard and I will be there this year. Maybe we'll see you too. .NET Rocks episode 978 with guest Billy Hollis. Recorded Wednesday, April 16th, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Uh, it's Carl and Richard. We're at our... Uh, our last show of the day at Dev Intersection Angle Brackets Conference in Orlando, Florida. Just an hour or two before the closing session, which for me is the most fun of the week. You know what's great about this conference and coming here all the time is just fans come up to us, you know, in the bar. Yeah. Something. Fans who would never get the chance to meet us in person. And not just us, but... Um, Billy, you must have the same experience where people come up to you, and there's no other situation in which you would run into these people in real life. Sure. And they just love to just sit and chat with you yeah, and, yeah. and have a, a drink or whatever. Well, the, the funny part, and this happens to me a lot, is people track me down because they hear me talking. Right. I'm walking down the hall chatting with someone, right. and they're just like, hey, how are we? they yeah. don't, may not recognize my face, but somehow they recognize my they voice. They hear your voice. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's like your own private little .NET Rocks uh, session. There you go. Well, let's roll that crazy music. All right, buddy, what do you got? For Better No Framework. Well, yeah. uh, because Mr. Hollis is here, uh, I thought I would pull out a lesser-known tidbit about XAML. Mm, and this right. is something I'm sure that you know, Billy. But I wouldn't count on that, but let's hear it. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's one of those tips that when you see it, it's like, oh, yes. But when you see examples all over the internet of XAML, uh, it, it seems that nobody has has figured it out. If you read the docs, when you any time that you have a namespace to your local assembly, right? Yes. Uh, XML NS colon local equals or whatever equals, and then you have CLR dash namespace and whatever your namespace is, and it's great because you have statement completion in Visual Studio. But you know, if you want, you can completely omit that assembly name and it will just use your local assembly you can just put two quotes there and that's right well i didn't know that because intellisense just fills that in so i normally fill it in and in windows 8 xaml i don't know if you realize that but that local namespace is there it's, by default it's there by default that's right that's which is great but in wpf land so here's the uh Here's from the docs. Assembly can be omitted if the CLR namespace referenced is being defined within the same assembly as the application code that is referencing the custom classes. Or an equivalent syntax for this case is to specify assembly equals with no string token following the equals sign. Well, I didn't know that, but I will certainly use that in class because I am constantly inserting that local for WPF classes. Yeah, and it's a pain. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and so now you could just, heck, you could make a part of the WPF template. Yeah. And just keep it there all the time. And then then it's n not a s dependent on your assembly whatsoever. Very, very that cool. Like it, that, that's bordering on magic to people who Absolutely. have seen it for the first time. <laughs> I like anything that borders on magic. That 
and makes people feel like they're getting a lot of value. Out of hey, man, I, I taught Billy Hollis something about WPFTN. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, I saw it in an example uh, in some sample code, um, and I, I said, now what the heck is that? And uh, looked it up in the docs, and there it was. One paragraph changed my world. So know it, learn it, love it. Awesome. Richard Campbell, who's talking to us today? I grabbed a comment off of show 922, and that is the one we did with uh, Mark Greenway some time ago, actually, uh, talking about MongoDB. Remember 922 was a long time ago? That's pretty funny. It's funny. That's November Remember back lo- in the 900s? That's it. Back in the 900s. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is funny. But uh, and this comment is not really about Mongo per se. This is a comment from Diane Wilson. I then have shot Bill. You would appreciate this as well. Uh, hi, Richard. I'm going to ping you on for a side comment about C-sharp developers not wanting to change languages and Xamarin catering to this, quote, cocoon, which I don't think is exactly what I said. But yeah, yeah it's like, hey, Xamarin's created an environment now where you can uh, program in C-sharp for just about everything. Mm-hmm. Learning new languages really isn't the be-all and end-all of broadening your horizons unless you make a really radical switch, say, from objects to functional or, deities forbid, assembler mm-hmm. and stay with it long enough to solve some major application problems over my career the things that have really broadened my perspective were new problem spaces or radical changes in architecture as an example i worked at nortel for many years where i had to learn to design code and test features for failover and fault tolerant systems mm-hmm. i had to learn how to apply architectural changes across release boundaries when a core requirement for a release upgrade was no outage time on the public telephone network i had to solve problems dealing with the backup and recovery of real-time data streams, diagnosing and fixing handshake failures, fine-tuning packet and window sizes for optimal performance, and much more. The language for all this was ProTel 2. I don't even know what that oh, is. I've never that? even heard of it. Never <laughs> even heard of it. <laughs> Just another object-oriented language, not all that different from early C-sharp, VB, or C++, or Java. Huh. Changing architectures can really be a big learning opportunity. Mm. SQL to NoSQL, for instance, and to stay on topic, client-server to web applications. Mainframe to mini or PC to phone. You learn much more from these kinds of changes than from simply changing language. To return to your Xamarin comment, staying in C-sharp buys you portability, but it doesn't protect you from architectural changes. iOS reminds me a bit of WinForms, whether I'm writing in C-sharp or Objective-C. Hmm. Android is based on a collection of collaborating processes, and C-sharp doesn't protect you from that either. Yeah. So one of these days, could you do a panel show on how changing to new application architectures has transformed developer skills? Ideally, this could happen without devolving into old-timer war stories. <laughs> oh, what's wrong with that, man? Do you know who we are? <laughs> Oh, man. We're sorry. Uh, sorry we're old. Yeah. Well, and, and Chris, when you talk about major architectural changes, a lot of them happened in the past. True. Right? Going from client server to end tier or actually switching over to web development techniques. Right, right. Like, those were big changes, and yep. they happened a while ago. But, uh, so it's probably going to end up in war stories. Mm. Regardless, uh, Diane, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, I think you got buy-in from everybody here that architectural changes have much more impact on you than languages do. Absolutely. So, And most of the time you had to change in a language because the new architecture requires things the old languages couldn't do. Right. I wouldn't want to try and build a website in Clipper. Ooh, Just that, saying. One of the fascinating <laughs> things about those transitions to me is the variable percentage of people who are able to conceptually make the leap. Yep. Yeah. So, for example, in going from procedural COBOL character base to the event-driven GUI VB we Mm. did in the 90s, I had a couple of COBOL teams that tried to make that leap. 
25 or 30 percent of the people could make that that conceptual leap and become productive. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, seeing people go from um, things like indexed old-fashioned databases to modern relational databases, the percentage of people that could make that transition was much higher. Mm. So I wonder if there's some kind of way to measure just how big the leap is based on how many people from the old are able to think about the new in a way and be productive and, and get the benefit out of it. It's always an interesting challenge. Well, and how many times do you run into the situation where people continue to use the old tools for the new way? And, you know, if you want to talk about sinning in that angle, you look at ASP.NET Web Forms, trying to maintain that WinForm development style over the browser. Well, one of the amazing things to me is that the original GUI way of looking at things that actually started in the mid-'80s has managed to be such a broad-based conceptual model that people can't shake it. It was in, it was on the Mac, it was in Visual Basic, in Windows up through Windows 90, 98, et cetera. It was part of .NET and Windows Forms. And as somebody, as you mentioned earlier in that comment, even, it even seeped over into iOS. There are some sure. concepts that made it over there. And because of that, when you started to look at the, the XAML world trying to transition the way that people thought about UI, it was a gigantic conceptual barrier to people doing that because they were so ingrained with Windows Forms sure. to the extent that 90% of the people that I see doing WPF today are doing basically Windows Forms designs. WinForms yeah. on WPF. That's right. And, <laughs> yeah. and they're putting a little bit of color in there and they might be using a little bit of data templates. Yeah. But the idea of building in more interaction than Windows Forms ever allowed simply does not occur to them. That's awesome. Hey, I better let Diane, Diane, thank you so much for your comment. And clearly you've kicked off a bunch of conversations that could turn yes. into a whole show. Mm. So I, I think I picked the right comment. Uh, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got it for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to diatomenterprises.com. And before we go any further, let me say that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release around 40 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access, with a wide range of topics including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, Web Everything, and Microsoft Everything, of course. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to Billy Hollis. Billy is a software designer and developer with a contrarian streak that often challenges conventional wisdom in the industry. No. <laughs> he has a consulting practice in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, he and his team focus on user experience design, advanced user interface development, rules-based architectures, and healthcare systems. He teaches design classes for UX and technical classes on XAML and Windows 8. Unlike many instructors, Billy can usually keep you awake for the entire class. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have you here again. And Billy. one of the luxuries of us actually all being together is we looked at each other and went, no. <laughs> oh, can't do that on the phone. Can't do that over the phone. Yeah, that's, that's right. funny. <laughs> so great to be here. So um, this is great. Uh, we talked to Brian Noyes just a little while ago, and we started off with the question, is WPF dead? So I don't want to start that with you. I'm, I'm going to say to you, is WPF back? Well, well, sir, I'm not sure it ever left because a substantial <laughs> portion of our business has been on WPF for the last three years. And Richard may remember this. At Build 11, 
when Windows 8 was rolled out. Yeah. And the emphasis was on HTML5 as sure. the way to do everything. Sure. And they didn't talk about that, .NET at all. And and following the uh, the repositioning of Silverlight or whatever you want to, whatever terminology you want to use. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then the the tea leaf reading. From Microsoft, what they really meant by that was, yeah, XAML was dead, that they kind of kept it as a sop in Windows 8 to their existing developers, but that there was no future in it. Yeah, and then and turns out most of the Windows 8 apps were written in XAML. It turned out that, the, yes, and from the beginning, I, I did not believe that the decision to switch to the HTML5 world would stand. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes down to a fundamental understanding about what HTML5 is good for yeah. and what XAML is good for. HTML5 has, uh, uh, of course, an enormous place in the entire world economy at this point. Sure. And I don't mean to minimize its importance, but it was designed for content delivery, and a lot of things have been kind of strapped on for application interfaces. Sure. For certain Mm -hmm. kinds of applications, it does a pretty good job. But I've talked to people inside Microsoft about the whole HTML XAML thing. I've heard people inside Microsoft say that the team that produced XAML should just have used HTML as their markup language from the beginning. Really? And to me, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what those two things are good for. Yeah. The analogy I would take is that, hey, we've got this VW Bug chassis line around. We need to build this semi-truck. Let's just use that chassis because we have it. Right. right. Because XAML has about that relationship to HTML. They both have angle brackets. They both have angle brackets. <laughs> sure, but beyond right. that, you've got a complete much richer object model. Mm. You've got the ability to build an interaction at a level that HTML5 can't do, or if it can do, it just takes a long time to and do it. Not only that, but there's so many things in XAML that are not appropriate anywhere else for HTML. That's right. Than than on a than on a client with with hardware. And, and it is it is my impression that most of the Windows team, exclusive of the people who came over from the Silverlight and WPF teams, fundamentally did not understand that distinction based on the people I've talked to. Sure. They did not understand what they had. XAML is one of the most, if not the most, innovative technologies that Microsoft has produced yeah. in the last 10 years. Totally it agree. is a fabulous technology. The rendering engine is a work of art. Mm-hmm. The object model is brilliant. I've, I lost count of how many times that as I was going through the learning process in 2006, 2007, 2008, I would see that they did something and think, well, that was a really silly way to do it mm. until... I got a little bit deeper and realized, actually, it was a quite brilliant way to do right, it. Right, right. <laughs> you just didn't know you needed it until you needed it. That's right. Yeah. But it you undeniably complex. Like, there's a lot to know. There is. And that's the Achilles heel of XAML, right. is that it takes you a good three to four months of just floundering, basically, before you start doing something that's any different from what you've done in forms-based environments before. Right. And because it takes that long, a lot of people never do get there. Right. But, but is, it is complex, yes. But could it be any less complex and still be as flexible and as And still it do is? what it, it did? Well, probably not in terms of the object model. The designers could be better. Yeah. There are a lot of ways that you could you could approach designing uh, XAML applications that would take away quite a bit of the tedium. The help could be better. The mm. help is just awful. Yes, we it could is. have reference applications that demonstrated things to you that XAML could do that you didn't realize it could do, and we don't have them. The problem with reference applications is they're big. What I really want is just simple examples in the help that just show you how and where this thing fits in the big picture. Yes. And that's that's the problem with the help, is there's so many little things that you when you go to the help, and there's 
uh, obvious description that is just help, you know, helpless, basically. And there's no example of where this fits in the big picture. There's no sample, you know, there's no little sample that I can use. That's because the person writing the help doesn't know right. Right. how to use that feature. They know what the specification for the feature was, but the specification says nothing about what that's good for in terms of giving a user a better, better experience. Yeah. Well, Isn't the implication here that there is a right way to use XAML? Aren't there several? There are several right ways, there, but there is, I think, a right approach to XAML okay. in the sense that you don't start out by the way you've doing things the way you've always done that yeah. you you just drag controls onto a screen until you're done you yeah. have to take a step backwards and understand what the user is doing at a level that you didn't have to to know if you were just going to throw a well, data grid but on But then again there are there is within XAML lots of subsets XAML isn't one thing right so binding for instance there is one right way to do binding in a particular circumstance the problem is it's freaking impossible to tell how to do that from the documentation. <laughs> that's true. It, you, that's where well, I, I talk about reference applications, not thinking of them as quite so big and monolithic, but representative ways to use data binding would be a part of what I would think a, a complete sample would do. Yeah. And we don't have good samples like that. And maybe the one concept that is kind of the one one way that everybody really should be using it in business applications, at least, is... The concept of a data template, that mm. that is a formative idea yeah. in XAML that, that renders it, uh, renders your thinking about it completely different from any other technology that I've ever seen. And, and within that concept of a data template, there are so many variations, so many variables, and so many things that you can do that just one sample isn't enough. I mean, I, that's can, correct. You can deep dive so deep into data templates. And, and when I did uh, my session yesterday on getting beyond the data grid, which data templates had a lot, lot of uh, applicability to. Mm -hmm. I did about four different samples for four different user scenarios to show how different the data templates can thing, be. That's the thing that interests me most about this is, you know, one of the reasons WinForms worked as well as it did is we were being dictated to from Microsoft about the way our apps were supposed to look. Yeah. Where the menu went, where the file was, where the save button was. Like, there was a set of rules and all apps were supposed to be like that. And... And then they, you know, with WPF, they just came up with no rules. No rules at all. Right. Well, there, there are some reasons for that. One is that the degrees of freedom in the Windows Forms world were significantly more limited. Yes. So you, there, there weren't as many variations to deal with. And I think at that time, think about the class of users that we had coming out of the 80s and 90s, mostly knowledge workers. Typically, they expected to do a fair amount of training. Um, but, but consistency was kind of the order of the day there. We yeah. needed consistency because we wanted for what people learned in one part of an application or one application in a company to transfer over to other things. But then the web came along. And by the late 90s, the whole idea of consistency was thrown out the window. Sure. We just didn't have it anymore. So people got used to that. They got used to the idea that I, I walk up to this website or this application and I figure out how to use it. Mm -hmm. What we didn't get to on the business application side was the parallel idea that if they're going to walk up to it, it ought to be obvious how to use it. Right. And in many cases, the applications that I see, the only way people know to make it obvious how to use it is to make it look just like the thing that they used 15 years ago. Right. So, so their existing training still applies. Yes. So here's one particular um, irksome thing and uh, about XAML. And maybe you have a solution to this that I just have been overlooking, but control templates. So let's say you have a custom button or some other control that you want to customize. 
Now, it isn't really enough that you take an existing button and change, you know, property setters and getters or whatever. But in some instances, you have to recreate from scratch the entire be every behavior of that button uh, or of that control. Let's not use a button because that's fairly simple. Mm -hmm. But of that control, you have, it's almost like you have to know the source of that to make a control template. And then, and then you change the things about it that you want to change. That, that to me is crazy. And and it's against the whole CSS idea, which is you just change the things that you want to change uh, from the hierarchy down. And is that the case truly? And why do you think that is? That is the case. That control templates require a level of understanding that is beyond what a lot of developers expect when they start. When I started, I didn't know that I would need them. They have some limitations in the sense that you can't inherit them and just extend them. Correct. You have to start all over from scratch. Right. They have some pretty bizarre rules about how things are done. Well, I'm sorry. It's better to say they're bizarre when you first look at them. Mm -hmm. They make complete sense when you get in deep enough. Sure. You have to get a lot of pieces in exactly the right place for a control template to work. Yeah. Uh, What you get out of that is that controls completely separate their visual appearance from their behavior. Hmm. And their behavior does not change. A a great example that I use in my class is that in applications where we're recording something, Hmm. the functionality you want is a checkbox. You want something that turns on and off. Mm -hmm. But the visual appearance you want is a microphone that turns red or something when you click it. Well, that's what we do. And if you go and look in the XAML at the applications that we have that do dictation and things like that in mm-hmm, healthcare, mm-hmm. then there's this checkbox, but it's got a control template that styles it to look like a microphone. Right. Yeah. So that's the power you get out of it is the ability to make any control appropriate to the purposes so it's very obvious and intuitive and also very fast. That is, the person can find that microphone on a surface much, much faster than they can sort out a checkbox and realize that it applies to recording. But you do have to know, the. it's like you have to have the source, the XAML source to a checkbox. That you do, well, you don't have to have the XAML source, you can build up your own. And in fact, that's typically what we do. Uh, and that but sounds, you sort of have to know what it does you, and how you to do, do that, right? So. Well, not really. The behavior is not affected by the control template. Okay. So you're going to get a, a click capability no matter what. All right. And... So you don't have to really worry that much about uh, some of the things in, in the in the control that you might think you did. Okay. For example, a checkbox is a content control. Yeah. So you can set the content on it. Got but it. our microphone checkbox just ignores the content. Well, that's a pretty simple example. But what if it's a list box, right? Or what? It, you know, and you do want all the things that a list box does, which is a lot of stuff. And then you want to modify some things. Well, it it I, I won't try to soft soap the fact that it is complex. Yeah. But it's one of those things that does get better and more intuitive, and you build up a library of things right. and stop having to worry about it after a while because yeah, you've yeah. got a library that does most of what you so want. You sort of get these UI metaphors into your head and how you can manifest them in XAML. Yes, including things like if someone makes a mistake, how are we going to visualize that into the control? Right. So and I've, that's part of, and of course that's part of the control template yeah, that yeah. makes it complex is we've got to take into account the visual states, such as I've found an error and I have to surface it. So these third party, you know, the guys that uh, advertise on our show, the Dev Expresses and the Telerix and the Infragistics and these guys, they would these guys have the XAML uh, equivalents, you know, of some of these controls that we can might maybe use as templates to start with. They do, and or, and I would say that a lot of the third party controls get you 
um, 70, 80% of the way where you'd like to be to create your own control templates. Yeah. We do not use the built-in control templates for anything. You have your own. We have from the very first project we ever did because they're ugly well because you started yeah. the beginning too right I yes mean, you've got a legacy effect here as well you were the first person i saw building real apps at wpf mm. before anybody else yeah well that's that's sad enough <laughs> <laughs> what's even sadder is that the number of people who who were inspired by that to continue that kind of that level of applying xaml to write really dramatically different business apps. Mm-hmm. That, that's not nearly as many as I had hoped it would be. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies are giving away a lot of, of benefit and value. They're switching to XAML as a platform in many cases because Windows Forms has been frozen now for 10 years right. almost. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't see the shelf life. For it to go another eight or ten years. Right. Now mm-hmm. it probably will be supported as part of the .NET framework. Of course, that sure, long. not dead, done. It's not. Yeah, but but it's not. It's not evolving. It's not going forward, and that makes big companies nervous. They don't want to spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on it. But if you're going to do desktop development at all, and let me tell you, there's a whole lot of business stuff that needs to be desktop. Still. It doesn't need to be on a 10-inch tablet. Right. I'm sorry, yeah. it just doesn't. Yeah. So if you're going to keep doing that stuff, WPF is, in many respects, the last man standing. Mm-hmm. It's the last technology that is being supported and carried forward and being enhanced and developed. Um, so a lot of people are adopting it and then not getting the value that I think they should. Mm. Because I see clients with measured metrics getting... Oh, 10, 15% productivity improvements. Wow. Mm-hmm. And if you calculate that out over hundreds of thousands of users, you're looking at seven and eight figure returns per year right. on, on labor savings mm. to the point where probably the best I've seen so far is, uh, I spent six or eight weeks working with one company to do some, some extensive redesign after they tried a couple of WPF versions and, and weren't satisfied. And the end result of it was that the calculation was they paid back everything that, that they spent on me and everybody else in the design process in six, seven weeks. Wow. Mm-hmm. So not a 10% return is nothing. Mm-hmm. It should be 50, 60, you 70%. You can get, returns. we have 40% the highest we've seen so wow. far. Wow. Wow. So you can absolutely get that kind of thing if you, if you go back and understand people's jobs and you learn enough about the technologies like control templates to actually apply it to make things easier for the user. But if you just go out there and, Recreate the wheel. Uh, recreate the, mm-hmm. the the Windows Forms version you've always done, or even recreate things the way you would do in HTML, ASP.NET. Sure. Mm-hmm. If you do that, then you will not get any significant improvement in, Interesting. in productivity. So we like to ask our guests, Billy Hollis, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, I, I spend that much per year. <laughs> so um, what, what would I buy today? Well, the first thing on my shopping list would be the Mayo Armband. Yes. Tell us about this. The Mayo Armband is... And how do you spell that? M-Y-O yep. okay. Armband. And the company is called Thalmic Labs. They're based in Canada. And like all the smart people. Oh yeah, I knew, there was, <laughs> hey, knew Richard, that was coming. Richard thinks that's a, a little, great idea. A little glow yeah. from my friend here. <laughs> I first saw this. Uh, I, I blurred across this on the web probably uh, six or seven months ago, and saw their video, mm-hmm. and included the video clip in, in a keynote I did at a conference, and then. That got noticed, and I, I started started talking to them. And the more I talk to them, the more excited I am. Let's explain a little bit about what it is. Sure. You you have this this band, this uh, 
band with a bunch of sensors in it and connected by some elastic. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it fits at the upper part of your forearm, just, just past below your elbow, close to your hand, below your elbow. And it senses muscle contractions and tendon contractions. It also has an accelerometer in it. It knows about pitch and yaw of the arm and it knows how the arm is moving. And it can transmit that signal via Bluetooth to any Bluetooth enabled device. So if you've got a device driver over there that's capable of picking up that data and interpreting it, now you've got the ability to do completely wide open gesture recognition of things like individual fingers that is uh is difficult for some of the camera based gesture recognition engines right because it's just measuring the energy coming from the nerve endings that's right to see that you've the, the motion sensitivity is quite high it's extremely high and these and guys they did a kickstarter i mean i mean on the kickstarter that's why i know about oh, it okay. i, I didn't it know i realized that yeah yeah no i i pre-ordered one i'm one of, i think they got 15 million dollars they raised from kickstarter 30,000 advanced orders of the product i've wow. i've been on the order list for quite a while myself and that has the, I think of scenarios such as the following. You consider a surgeon mm-hmm. who needs to look at MRIs and other diagnostic things while he's doing an operation. He, he can't touch anything. No. You can talk about touch-based computing, but he can't touch anything. Yeah. And there are, so there are a lot of interesting things in healthcare. At a minimum, I predict that either that device or one of its competitors, whoever ends up winning that, we won't be carrying slide clickers in our hands yeah. no. five years from now. We'll have something strapped to our arm and just wave the slide. Well, and I also like the want. position of it up on your forearm where if you have a long sleeve shirt on, people don't even it. know it's there. They don't even know. And it. so just to be clear, this can, can track, you know, the sort, sort of things that the connect does for a hand. That's right. At a finer grain and a, in a finer grain and also the fingers that the uh, leap can do. That's does right. Does it have that same fidelity that the it's, leap it, does? I, not quite as fine grained as that. Okay. But it's a, it's an interesting amalgam of the different things you might want to, to get in terms of, of, of gesture recognition. And it just looks practical to me. It looks like it's in a good sweet spot yeah. for that industry. Because to me, the, the drawback of all the camera based recognition has, has consistently been that you must face the camera. You yeah. must do, sure. you must be at a certain distance. Yeah, the yeah. space that it's in matters. Right. All those yeah, yeah. And to me, gesture based better be a lot more freeform than that. Yeah. yeah. Or it's not going to really take off. Yeah, you're right. And the the devices, I think the last, when I ordered them, they were 149 dollars yeah, piece. 150 bucks. They're so and they're, they're for sale now. Nope, still in development. Still, still well, development. you can get on the pre order. Yeah, and, you and get on they're the supposed to ship sometime. I think they are vague about it, but between between now and the end of the year, I think I, is. I there. think well, and they demonstrated at CES this year in January. Mm-hmm. So the, I mean, the product exists. People were clearly operating it. You know, because for me, Kickstarter still this. Sooner or later, mm-hmm. we're going to have the big con. You know, you got to <laughs> think they got that fifty million bucks all at once. Mm. Somebody had to think. You know, mm. I could just get myself a cashier's check and get out of head out of town. That's right. Go to but, Bahamas and they would never see me again. Yeah, mm. but they, that's clearly not what's happening. These guys have built this product. I think you're just trying to. There's a big difference between getting a prototype that works at CES and getting something you can manufacture and make money on at 150 dollars a piece. Yes, yeah, so that'd be the first thing I would start spending money on. It It won't cost nearly five thousand dollars. No, you so, buy a bunch of them. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the emotive insight to come. Right, uh, the new one. The new one that I did a Kickstarter for, and there, if you look at the schedule, they say they're going to ship in April. Yeah, well, and Tan Lee's done a bunch of videos. They were at CES too, right? They're they're showing off. The you new know about technology. this, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I have not 
investigated that as closely, but so I'm aware of it. Richard and I both have the old. You have the old one. I right? never got the old one. Oh, you I got, got the old. One. I got the old one, and let yeah. me tell you, it's really cool. I mean, you think you train it for a good ten minutes or whatever, and you think of something, and then it tells you what you're thinking of. It's pretty, pretty awesome. And this ties back into some of the stuff we talked about with Zim, mm-hmm. because if you if you think that you're going to get access to this in HTML-based platforms, well, you will eventually, yep. but it'll be further down the road. Right. And, oh gosh, how many JavaScript libraries can you stand at this point? I mean, <laughs> to, to me, to me, it's these days, HTML5 pages come together like the Terminator and Terminator 2, just bits flow together to form the page nice. every time you do it. And there's kind of a, a I don't know, I feel, is, is it just an emotional distaste because... I'm kind of accustomed to a strongly typed, object-based, et cetera, yeah. client-based environment. Is it just an emotional thing on my part that I look at this this HTML page coming together from all these bits and feel like, gosh, that can't be stable. That can't be that can't be <laughs> well, as reliable as I'd like it to be. I'm surprised all, any of this stuff works at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, XAML, C-sharp, the whole thing. I mean, if I'm amazed that it works as well as it does. Yeah, I am. Yeah, it's very, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm with you, Billy. It's very challenging to, to deal with the two models. And, and you say you've been working WPF for a long time, but thinking about some of these different user interfaces, are you doing much outside of mouse and keyboard with WPF? We're, we're doing touch in some cases. Okay. Um, and touch in WPF is hard. So it's not that hard to do, but it's hard to get a really smooth experience right, with touch. which is what it's all about. That's right. And if, if touch isn't smooth, it doesn't work well. So usually the dichotomy comes in that WPF is the desktop thing, and if you're going to do traditional business applications, that's what you use. As soon as you go to a mobile tablet form factors, you move to Windows 8 XAML. Right. Because if you learn all those concepts, template, data templates, control templates, and layout, it all just migrates over. It mm-hmm. takes you... Four months to figure XAML out to start with, but it only takes you about a week to move from WPF to Windows 8. Yeah. Okay. So if you need touch, you move over and do that. And that is probably 10 or 20% of the stuff we I, do. I found I had to, I had to make my own buttons just to make them look better when you touch them. So they didn't flash and put borders around them and all that thing. Well, there actually is all a that. set of controls that was made by what used to be called the Surface team, now called the PixelSense team right. for WPF. And that's up to version two. I think the last version of those controls was put out in 2012. Oh, that's cool. So you can actually go get download that from Microsoft Very cool. and get a set of controls that replace the built-in controls. So they still have the Surface name on them. So mm-hmm. there's a Surface button and a Surface list box. And, and the Surface list box has the ability to swipe in WPF with a touch nice. and do the kind of behavior that you would and they expect. still uh, they still take a mouse as they well. They still take a mouse, certainly. Sure. But the, it's the, interesting how different behavior is between mouse and finger. Because hmm. a mouse, you can still see the button. Generally, when your finger hits the button, the button's covered up. Yes. Like, there's just a lot of little subtle metaphors that are different. When well, you there's, a lot of, there's a lot of psychology involved there, too, in the sense that to the to the brain, using a mouse and, and using touch are, are really very different. Right. In the sense that when somebody touches something on a screen and moves it, the brain believes at an unconscious level that it's moving a physical object. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it doesn't know any different. Yes. And so that means when it doesn't move, oh, boy, you really don't like that at it's all. It's big wrong. Yeah, yeah. The disconnect in the brain feels right. really bad. Yeah. Whereas 
when you're moving a mouse to the side of your desk and you're seeing a pointer move around, your brain knows that there's some mediation going yeah, on Yeah, it's, it's a much more intellectual exercise. Right. One of those telling points happened, I think, on one of the first road trips or the second road trip when Richard and I were in a, uh, a RV or something like this or a rental car. And we got in and Richard reached up to the GPS. Oh, yes. You know? To yeah. try to touch the screen. And, and he's like, did I just do that? <laughs> yeah. You know? And it just didn't move. Uh, but, you know, that was a long time ago, but it, it just turned out to be one of those moments. Yeah. So you have to be aware that as you're designing that, that, that there is that difference, and that means that with touch you have a higher level of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So even though you can get that toolkit and you can make it work, generally, unless you have an extremely good reason to use WPF for touch, I recommend you don't. Well, yeah. when on earlier tablet shows, which are now .NET Rock shows, uh, guys like Rocky Lock and a few others are saying like the the – WinRT deployment model was so painful, it was easier to build WPF apps for Windows 8 because you could actually get them on devices. Right. Well, they, they, some of the deployment issues have been fixed yes. with, mm-hmm. uh, since then. And and I would agree that the deployment model was the Achilles heel there. But I, I'm all about the user experience. And if I can't get smooth user experience, I don't want to do it. Well, you and said this right off the bat. Speed's super important with, with touch. It has to be realistic. It has to be. It has to feel totally and completely natural or there will be an emotional reaction to it right. that you won't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very detrimental to the experience. So what do you think about the idea, and, and I guess this brings us back to the armband, about three-dimensional user interfaces and manipulating 3D space? And either with 3D television or, you know, 3D monitors or, uh, you know, glasses or something like that. I, I'm just, you know, we're in Orlando, brought my kid to, uh, to Epcot last night. And in one of those situations, you are actually standing in front of a screen um, and you're using a joystick, granted. Mm-hmm. And, but you do have 3D glasses and you are moving this thing around in, in, in 3D space to grab stuff and move it. And I thought, how cool would that be if I could just extend my arm and, you know, something that looks like my arm goes out and allows me to reach up, grab things, and move them around and manipulate them? Well, there are some, there are some particular scenarios that I think could, could work well, data visualization and some things like that. But in general, there's a, there's a design principle called most advanced yet acceptable. Mm. We call it Maya, M-A-Y-A. Mm-hmm. And what it says is when you go to do a redesign, especially with a platform change, you want to go as advanced as you can that the, that you think the user will still accept. Sure. Okay. And to me, the 3D stuff is beyond that point right now. Well, it's you, beyond you mean- what users would accept because they're already the, the the gap we're trying to stretch them to get them into modern business UI. We're talking about business users, yes. business apps. Yeah. And for those folks, uh, it's hard for me to find yeah. really good applicability now for but games. But even in and the medical like that, situation, right? Uh, there, well, I said, as I said, there are some there are yeah. some particular scenarios, some narrow scenarios where it can mm-hmm. work, and medicine is certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. But healthcare, healthcare is not exactly the most. Forward thinking. Yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> They're very conservative for technology. a reason. They are. We, They're very risk about, averse. We're, we talked about this many times on the show. You know, I used to work for a healthcare software company and and found it found the customers to be very risk averse. Yes. They, you know, because it's the reason they love paper so much is because they know where it is. They can pick yes. it up. They can look at it. They hold it in their hands, and they ha- they are in control. Yes. People aren't going to die. And there right? is a lot of dissension right now in the medical community over. A dissatisfaction with the state 
of particularly clinical record systems, yeah. the doctors are being forced to use them because there are laws that say they have to. Yeah, it has and to be they, digital. They, they are required to go digital. And th- it's pretty clear to me that none of the existing clinical record systems are up to the user experience that doctors really want to mm-hmm. meet. Not just that, but I'm sure that these recent security breaches don't give them the warm fuzzies either. Uh, that, that has that has also implications. But it looks like maybe that, that we're starting to see the first cracks in in that beginning to appear and, and to move into to more modern UI because we do a lot of work in healthcare. Sure. We worked with 3M to do a new radiology reporting package mm. that is true modern UI. Cut mm-hmm. training by two thirds and and uh, it's they like it so much they consider it so innovative. You can go get the PDF brochure, mm-hmm. but it has one fuzzy screenshot on it. They won't even show you screenshots. You have wow. to come. You have to come and watch. You have to use it a demo to really understand for them to because they don't want their competition. Well, that was one of my questions: it. was Are these people resisting because they don't like technology, or is the technology just not that good yet? Uh, it's um, it's I don't think it's either of those. It's because they haven't seen what the technology can do yet. Right. We haven't built good enough software right. that it actually does the job for Because them. when the people from 3M called us in, they had a Windows Forms radiology management mm, package. Right. And it looked exactly the way you would expect a Windows Forms package to look. Sure. And I looked at all their competition, and they were worse. <laughs> so <laughs> This was the best. This was as about as good as it gets it or among like, the top two or three. It looked like 3M tape gray. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was all Battleship gray. And I Rush actually use some of the screens – fudged up from my investigation at that time as examples of bad design in my design class. So when we went into 3M, they knew that they needed to do better, but they didn't know what it looked like. Right. So the number of people in the medical industry who have the vision to do it is is still pretty limited. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of work with Xerox and they have a healthcare division called Midas that, that encompasses several companies. And they they have new executive talent there who worked for a company in Nashville that they that, that Xerox bought mm-hmm. that we worked with that we've been working with for the last ten or twelve years. So these guys got it. They understand what the new technology will do, mm. and Xerox just snapped those guys right nice. up. But that mm. tells you how limited that the the, the pool of the pool is, is yeah. to understand what these new UI technologies can do. And so, right. and when you get it right, like when. The radiologist sees that 3M radiology program. They get it. They right? absolutely get That's it. That's what I want. Oh, there's a great story from that <laughs> because we went up to see uh, the folks uh, at their facility after they had put it into beta. And the trainer was telling me that she had a traditional training just like the one for Windows Forms. Mm-hmm. And she said oh, the, the machines were there or the, the, the computers with the software running were there. Mm-hmm. And she started training, but people weren't paying any attention to her because they were just using the software. (laughs) And she realized that she needed to restructure the training just to say, here are the tasks I want you to try, feel your way around it. And let me know if you have any troubles. Right. And see if you, see if you run into difficulty because it was intuitive enough that you didn't need somebody to stand at the front of a room and explain it for three days. Right. That's awesome, actually. That, well, that says a lot, doesn't it? It does. It's, it, it is one of the huge benefits of good design. And the benefits of having a technology like XAML where you can put that kind of intuitiveness in. I can't write you a Windows Forms application that is that intuitive. Right. And and I can't write you an HTML5 one either. Maybe there's somebody out there that if you give enough money, they can do it. So, well, you know what? We Windows Windows Forms applications were all about those drop-down menus. Right. Yes. And damn those drop-down menus. <laughs> <laughs> 
understand that. Because <laughs> you know what? That's not the way to navigate. No, and it's not. It's it, it was a continual puzzle to me. While Windows Forms did not get something ever that was so desperately needed, which was a multi-column dropdown. Right. There was never one put in there. It, and even Microsoft Access had one of those. Hmm. So that was, to me, says something about how primitive that technology was. Sure. Uh, you think of Windows Forms, the most common design pattern you see for UI is what I call the wall of data grids pattern. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and <a> lot- <laughs> it's like the wall of sound, right? Yeah. <laughs> and when you, when you really looked at those data grids and, and asked what they were doing, a good half of them were for nothing but selecting records. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. Show me all the records Show me so all I records. can select one. Right. <laughs> so I can pick one. Please return 500 records so I can sort them by last name and find the name I want. 500? How yeah. about 500,000? Yeah. 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 And when you move to the XAML world, you, one of the reasons you don't need a lot of data grids, as I talked to the people in the session yesterday, is you write a normal list box with a template that emphasizes the data people need. You put some something up at the top so it can be filtered and sorted, yeah. and people can find what they want in a fraction of the time. Right. Because they're using their visual brain instead of their conscious brain mm. to see a symbol that they want or something that, that's going to sure. call well, out the record that they this want. This sort of walks me, you know, WinForms worked okay at its time because there was training around it and it was a repeatable pattern. I'm wondering if we're all being trained to understand these new UIs because of devices like the iPhone. We've sort of shifted people's expectations for how UIs should behave. That Well, that yeah. certainly is one of the... It's like the constraint has given us new new direction and new freedom, actually. Well, that's one of the one of the motivating factors. Certainly, is that executives in IT organizations, even in very large companies, the penetration of iOS devices is somewhere in the seventy percent range. Wow. Mm-hmm. So these people know what these kinds of devices are capable of, mm-hmm. and after a while, they begin to wonder. Wait a minute. Yeah, why what? does our stuff still look like this right. when I have this little thing I was basically given for a hundred dollars in a three year contract? That See, is so intuitive that yeah. I can walk right up to it and use it with no training, no yeah. instruction, no nothing. And add new software to it at any time Anytime and I still know how to use it. And so that is one of the motiv- motivating factors that gets people started down this road. And uh, that, of course, is good for me and folks like me who, who, who come in who specialize in this idea mm-hmm. of transitioning business software over to this modern app era. And XAML is our preferred tool just because it's the most powerful. Right. But there just isn't, there aren't enough people in the Microsoft ecosystem right now doing it. Mm-hmm. That's the, that may be the biggest limiting factor right now. And, and Billy, is this where the money is? Let's be honest. Oh man, there's tons of it. Nice. I, I, my, I keep raising my rates and people keep paying them. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a shame. I have jokingly <laughs> referred to our rates as extortionate. Yeah. And people still pay them because if you go out and you, and you decide we're moving to XAML, we actually do want to get value out of it. We want to make it so that it's intuitive, productive, we're saving money on training, et cetera. Then you start to look at the list of people who specialize in doing that and it's just shockingly small. Right. Mostly because that the ecosystem inside Microsoft has never valued that before right? Mm. up until the fairly recent past. The value was in, could you figure out those five layers of plumbing, please, yes. to get me from here to the server? The value was not in, could you give me a user experience that mm. was intuitive and exceptional? Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and so notice then that the pressure comes from outside the ecosystem right. to do it. Yes. And since the pressure is coming from outside, in many cases, the people inside the ecosystem simply don't know how to respond. It's not part of their experience. 
They don't even know what direction to turn to. Hmm. But it seems like at Build, Microsoft was making it pretty plain that the client's where it's at, and we need to provide answers for this heterogeneous world. Yes. And and WPF is part of these answers. And WPF ought to be part of the answer because it is the one technology running on the desktop that can that can create what I would arguably call a modern app. I think all the apps mm-hmm. we create are modern apps. Mm, right. When you start to look at them... Cosmetically, they look like the sort of apps that run on tablets because we've learned a lot about how to use uh, shapes and colors and things like that to make mm-hmm. them better. But the interaction patterns are like tablets, too. Sure. It may be with a mouse instead of touch, but we may do oh, – let's say we've got a, a – a, I, I did this for a prototype for a client just in the last month where they have a situation where there are some complex choices that people have to choose from. And there are typically six or seven possibilities of which they're going to choose two or three. Right. Well, we're not going to just make that a typical list box with check marks or something. We'll make that so that, first of all, the data visualization to help them choose the right item is exceptional. It's mm-hmm. not just a bunch of text right. the way it used to be. We'll put numbers and numbers on lines right. and symbols and things to indicate what the choices represent. And then when they choose one, we'll animate it to a selected position. So it's very clear that they, they know what they're choosing. And by the way, we'll do this probably with very little code. With almost no code at all. <laughs> I, did it, I did it in a prototype by imposing some behaviors in Blend. Yeah, I just wow. strapped a behavior to a list and a stack panel. Mm. And all you do is, once you've done that, if you remove something from, as I guess we should do a little, so we're going to talk about XAML, yeah, yeah, yeah. just to let people know this, suppose you have a list of, of elements in a stack panel, mm-hmm. and you have a fluid move behavior on that stack panel. Now, all what is, you have to, What does that fluid move mean? Move, fluid move, yeah, what does that move? Yeah. You just go over to blend, and you can drag the fluid move behavior right on to the Give stack panel. Give me an example of a fluid move behavior. like a, like Fluid a, move means... Like a, so if, suppose I'm in a regular stack panel and I remove an item from the children collection mm-hmm. that's in position five. Yeah. And I insert it back into the children collection in mm-hmm. position zero. Okay. So it's at the top. Yeah. Well, it will disappear yep. in this, in a snap and reappear at the top. Right. And all the others between will disappear and reappear yeah, one, yeah. one down. If you put a fluid move behavior on that same stack panel and you don't do anything else, now that one that you put back will rise to the top in an animated way, mm. and all the others will sink in an animated way and down one just, position, and you do nothing for that except attach the behavior. That's wow. so cool. So that's that's kind of where we're going. Uh, one of the standard controls that I use in uh, in the prototypes I do is called a transitioning content container. Right. That basically I know about this. You, yeah, I've been doing it lately. You you put you put new content in it. It animates it the old content out, the out and the slides side. the new content in. So now you, as the typical developer, don't have to go through all the trouble to animate to get these modern app kind of experiences. And what is that behavior called again? Well, I call it transitioning content. Yeah. And since it's just a container, it doesn't really matter what yeah. the content is. Right. You can now animate anything in or out, in or, in or out onto the screen or off the screen just by using that as the container that you put it in. So we get into this whole idea that this is not a coding problem that you're dealing with. Yeah. This is uh, a conceptual set of problems. Like you're looking at user interaction patterns and trying to figure out which one makes sense, which one makes the user more comfortable when they're actually doing these selections. I wouldn't say that it's an either or, but the problem, the conceptual problem is bigger. Right. Because people in this ecosystem know how to figure out 
the, the, the technical side of things. Mm-hmm. They will eventually master that if they are pushed. Yeah. Now, if you, if you give them the easy out of just spoofing whatever they did before, yeah. then they will learn this technology up to a certain point and they'll just stop. Right. But if you make it clear from the beginning, and this is for the managers in the audience, mm-hmm. that, that that's not good enough, the technology part of it, people will learn. Mm-hmm. The, mo- the, the biggest danger there is they tend to overthink it and do things the hard way. Any time in XAML that you find yourself brute forcing something, you're probably doing it the wrong right. way. Right. It sure. should be easy. It should be easy. 90 yeah. whatever mm-hmm. percent of the things you do are easy. So that's a danger sign when you mm-hmm. find Very that you, a, 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 a tangible example may help. The most popular WPF program I've ever written puts a cutout of Master Chief on any desktop that you want. So I have <laughs> I have the landscape desktops. Right. <laughs> and there's one with, you know, the the standing on ice and there's one where you're in this lush green. Yeah. And so you can move Master Chief around and you can resize him. <laughs> That's all standard WPF stuff. But he it looks like a gadget you see. There's there's it's a chromeless window. Sure, so yeah. I needed to drag him around the desktop to yeah. make that work. Yeah. I spent two hours fooling around with tra- capturing mouse events. Right, right, right. Right. And realizing that's dumb. Let's go research it. Right. One line, one line <laughs> in the constructor of the window will completely solve that problem. That so if you're so building, awesome. if you're building a gadget in XAML that goes on the desktop and you don't put Chrome on it, you need that one line. So that's the uh, window Chrome. No, it's uh, it's there's an ad. Yeah, you, you, the window Chrome. There, there's a property that gets rid of all right, the window right, chrome, right, right. but then now you're responsible for handling your own dragging okay. because normally dragging is done by dra- dragging the title bar. Right, right. So the technical stuff can be accomplished as long as people don't overthink it too much. Right. But it's certainly true that the conceptual barriers are probably higher. And I think that some of the problems in Windows 8 come out of that lag in the sense that the people working on it didn't have the maturity of design that you'd like them to have to be designing an operating system right. that was that ambitious. Mm. You can't learn to think in these new ways in two or three or four months. It'll take you two or three years. Yeah. And so that's that's the bigger challenge. And not everybody on the team has to be able to do that, but you have to have some members of the team who can do it. So are you looking forward to the next version of uh, Windows 8 or Windows 9 or whatever it is, the one they showed off at Build that Uh, that we don't have? Yes, I I would very much like to see a version of Windows 9 that would, or the next generation of Windows that would take all of the stuff that we've learned to love about WPF, make it touch available, Mm. and make it so that it's going to be in the operating system of the future. Mm. I would very, very much like that. I consider Windows 8 as, in terms of its foundation, in terms of its API, et cetera, to be pretty well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think they did a really good job there, but you would expect them to. That's what Microsoft's good at. Yeah. Right. The user experience was its was its weakness. And Richard, you may remember talking to me. Oh yeah. Yep. The day that it was rolled out and, yeah, and yeah. You're 11, shaking I, your head. I was skeptical, going, "I don't <laughs> think this is gonna fly." <laughs> yeah. And of course, I wasn't the only one. Nope. Uh, Jakob Nielsen of Nielsen Norman mm-hmm. took it apart pretty bad a month afterwards, and I think that was representative of some of the. Um, some of the immaturity of design thinking at that point on the Windows team. Now, I would hope that in the three years since then that they've gained some some depth, and I'm looking for Windows 9 yeah. to be a much, much more mature product from a design well, perspective. Clearly, they're moving Windows 8 forward 
Yes. Fixing right. those metaphors quite a bit. The, the latest updates. They are. So. They've, they've fixed some of the most obvious flaws. Yes. But I, I still see flaws. I'd love to still see ways them to go. fix. Yeah, yeah. And I still think Microsoft could benefit greatly from acquiring some world-class design talent from outside mm. the company. I think that mm. that is still an area where if you're going to be a devices company as mm-hmm. part of the devices and mm-hmm. services, then you need to up you your game to. on design. Absolutely. And hire some <laughs> Apple engineers. <laughs> 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 well, sorry, I had something in my throat. I just couldn't swallow it all. Uh, oh, sorry. And, and, and it's, um, it's a little bit troublesome to me to see that, that with all the positive changes, Recently, in terms of the leadership there, sure. kind of acknowledging some of the things that they have done, right. the, I have not seen parallel changes on the design front. They have a chief experience officer now, but it's somebody from inside the company that comes from a C++ background hmm. and doesn't really have the kind of background, I think, is going to take Microsoft forward in that direction. They need to hire some Rhode Island School of Design graduates. Yes. Hey, that your was daughter's my, only a couple years away. <laughs> one, of, one, of my, one of my snarkiest tweets, I think, on this is pointless, so I'll probably... Back, back around build 11 was untrue rumors. I have this category called uh, probably untrue rumors. Right. And one of them was that Microsoft hired most of their designers from the North Paducah School of Design and Auto Mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> I know where Paducah can get you. Know where Paducah is. <laughs> yeah, I, do. I do. I do. All right, guys. This is great. Billy, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I always learn something. I always learn a lot. And yes. uh, wow. Oh, it's always again. a pleasure to be here. All right, and we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...